Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gabriel Hakon and I am here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we are here today to talk about Sadie's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. Now, um, this episode that you're listening to is the second episode in our five-episode series about the leadership of the uh, First Baptist Church of Hammond and the inter- independent fundamental Baptist movement in general. And um, this is the second episode in a two-parter about Jack Hiles, the man who is responsible for turning the First Baptist Church of Hammond into the megachurch it is today, and also for turning it into the cult that it is today. So if you didn't listen to the first episode in this series, I'd highly recommend that you do, just so that everything makes sense. Before we start this episode... Uh, there's just a few things that we wanted to say. The first is that this episode is going to be long and very detailed. Uh, and that's just because Jack Hiles was and is uh, still highly revered by tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And if we're going to come with a story about his misdeeds, uh, his misconduct, we need to provide details and evidence. Um, and we aren't going to make any claims that we can't back up with evidence. And if show you where that's available for you, just just to make sure that all of our bases are covered. Yes. And we also wanted to let you know that just hours before we were originally supposed to record this episode a few days ago, I got some new information about the Hiles family. This episode was extremely difficult to write to begin with. Not only is there just so much detail and so many sources I want to make sure you have, 
But we'll also talk about at the end of the episode about how I was raised to see Hiles as a personal hero and why it's both terrifying and hard for me to talk about him negatively. When I got even more evidence against him, that added even more difficulty. So what we've decided to do is we're leaving this episode almost totally like it was before that new information. And we'll discuss that new info in the next episode when I've had a little more time to process. Yeah. Um, and like she said, uh, we were originally set to record this episode one day and then we tried to record it. It was extremely difficult. We had some technical issues, but it was mostly tough because the subject matter cuts so closely to the core of her upbringing. It, so we like legit had to stop recording, take a few days off and then go for it again later. Now, I'm never going to understand what it was like to have Sadie's upbringing. But it wasn't until we were trying to record this episode that I think that I truly was able to understand the iron grip that Jack Hiles and the IFB can have on people's minds. Just from observing the mental and emotional and spiritual strain, uh, like lion-hearted bravery to do what she has been doing and talking and uh, confronting these issues. Where we left off in the last episode, Jack Hiles had come to Hammond, Indiana, and through his bus ministry and his fire and brimstone preaching style, he had essentially turned the First Baptist Church of Hammond into a mega church. He opened the First Baptist. He's opened a First Baptist Church of Hammond private Christian school, and he'd opened a Bible college, and the parish loved him. The last episode, we compared the congregation to an unarmed standing army at the end of the episode. And today we're going to talk about them going into battle for their leader. Today, we're actually going to see how deep their loyalty goes. Um, Sadie, if you want to take the story from there. So the church loved him. And more importantly, at least by this point, we can say for sure that Hiles knew how much they loved him. So in the first episode, we discussed the moments before he had gained this kind of undying loyalty. And we discussed the first times that we can say for sure that he had gained that loyalty and knew it. Into the mid-80s and the early 90s, Jack Hiles began to demonstrate his power over his congregation with some increasingly elaborate loyalty tests. And I think the most famous and the most public of these loyalty tests Happened in front of the entire congregation in 1990 on a Sunday night. Jack Hiles stood in the pulpit. Uh, like he often did, he was bragging on the loyalty of his staff members at the church. He motioned to Johnny Colston, who is an assistant pastor, uh, who was sitting kind of right behind him on the platform. Mr. Colston and his wife Elaine are pillars of the church in Hammond still. Jack Hiles took from behind the pulpit two glasses of orange juice and a bottle clearly marked with a skull and crossbones marked as poison. It was cyanide or arsenic, depending on who you ask. He shows the poison off to the crowd, kind of very dramatically holding it up, and then he pours the entire contents of the small bottle into one of the two glasses of orange juice. And he was speaking about how sin in a person's life is like poison. The drama of what he was doing drew more attention than his words did. So suddenly he turned to Johnny Colston and he says, would you drink that if you don't mind? And it isn't clear from the audio, but according to people who were there, Colston kind of laughed it off or shrugged it off the first time. And Hiles becomes more direct. Would you drink that if I asked you to? And Colston hesitated and he looked nervous and then he said yes. I have some poison I plan to pour in here. Notice the... the uh, bones and the skull there. 
Now then, if I walked up tonight and I said to you, I've got something I want you to drink. In fact, for the course, and I'd like you, you don't mind to drink this? How do you like that? He said, if you want me to, I'll drink it. That's what you call real loyalty. So what do we make of this story? Because in one sense, it's not unexpected or even out of character that he would pull some sort of stunt like this to test the congregation's loyalty. But in another like specific requirement, of a public demonstration of loyalty is far more audacious than we have seen before. I think to answer that, you have to... You have to go back and find out why Hiles in the early 1990s was so obsessed with loyalty to begin with. If the if the story about women dropping their wedding rings in the offering plate isn't enough, well, surely this poison story stands to prove that Hiles had the loyalty of his people to the point that they would die for him. And why is it that after all of that, he's still seemingly obsessed with loyalty, still trying to prove it? The answer starts many years before he casually asked an assistant pastor if he would drink poison for him in front of the congregation. So we're going back to the 70s and 80s. So, you know, 10 and 20 years before this poison incident. First Baptist Church of Hammond was flourishing. Hiles Anderson College admission boomed. They hired all of Hiles' closest friends, supposedly the best of the best teachers and preachers and missionaries, to teach at Hiles Anderson First Baptist Church of Hammond grew even more massive as well. The more college students there were to grow the bus ministry and faithfully go out soul winning each week, the larger the bus ministry and the church grew. So Hiles was, or at least he claimed to be, an in-demand preacher with a large following on a large waiting list to have him come speak at your church. Money flowed in through Hiles Anderson, through the church offering, but also through Hiles Publications. Uh, Hiles Publications is a company dedicated to publishing Hiles books and tapes and other preachers that agreed with him and their books and tapes. Hiles Publications was nebulous. No one seemed to know whether the business belonged to the church or whether it was owned by Hiles himself. However, everyone knew the woman that was instrumental to distributing those books and tapes across the country and around the world. She sat in the choir behind Hiles' left shoulder, directly across the aisle from his wife, Beverly, who sat right behind his right shoulder. She had the office next door to Hiles' study, and her name was Jenny Nistrick. So money also appeared in Hiles' pockets from one other notable way, in the form of love offerings from the many churches he visited. Hiles taught the preacher boys at Hiles Anderson that it was proper when a pastor or evangelist visited your church to take him to the nicest restaurant the church could afford to pay for, buy him a new suit of clothes if possible, and give him a generous offering before he departed. Which is interesting because Hiles himself often was that visiting preacher. So there's a clip that I want to bring up that I saw in one of the documentaries that you sent me. Um, This is a clip of female Hiles Anderson College students singing, and it's deeply disturbing, not because the singing is particularly bad, but because of the song. How would you explain this? The We Love You Preacher song is something that 
You can see in quite a bit of footage from the time. Huh. Uh, you can see high schoolers singing it. Um, that particular clip is from Church with the Heart, the documentary that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, college girls were also really well known for singing it. Uh, Hiles would meet with the female students at Hiles Anderson College periodically. He would have all the girls congregate in the chapel. Usually he'd bring his wife with him. He would play games and sing songs with the girls. They called him Boopsie Whoopsie. And uh, apparently they really enjoyed seeing their pastor, who was normally very austere and formal. Uh, They got to see him with his tie around his head, being silly and serving them pizza and ice cream. On one occasion, he had a $20 bill given to every girl in the audience so that everyone could buy a new dress for Easter. On other occasions, he he brought these you know, girls that he thought were deserving and hardworking up onto the stage and dramatically declared that he had paid the rest of their bill for this semester. So these girls' meetings were, were a really big deal. So I found another song that the college girls would sing for Hiles at these meetings, and apparently he wrote the lyrics for this one himself. You'll see why in a minute. Huh. So here's the song. Look at all that hair. Look at all that hair. Tis the answer to a college woman's prayer. It's no joke that I'm provoked because I'm not allowed to stroke those bushy locks of Boopsie Whoopsie's hair. Blessed locks, precious locks, on those dear old hairsprayed threads I love to look. As I sit in chapel chair and adore his gorgeous hair, I can hardly keep my mind upon the book. So for those who are listening to that, I just want to point out that this man was bald. Like, if you look at any pictures of him, I know, like, it's it's fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing right now through my possible coronavirus. But this man was bald <laughs> with a strong comb over, like, a strong comb over. Like, uh, this is something that this is right. I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is a Jewish man. OK, baldness is in my people's collective destiny. So like so much so that we invented a hat to cover it and then made it a religious requirement that everybody wear it. But they're literally singing about something that doesn't exist. Like this man has no hair. It's like combed like <laughs> around his head in like a in, in like a yeah, tornado. You, you just, yeah. You've got to see the pictures to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look it up. He's he's very bald. <laughs> so he was reportedly really insecure about his balding. Well, who wouldn't be? Um, <laughs> you know, that's understandable. When my dad was on the skit team, Hiles. Uh, encouraged them the skit team to poke fun at him in these little ways but he did say never ever make fun of his balding he was really insecure about it so you know what this reminds me of and maybe i'm wrong about this characterization but this is just the impression that i got is that it reminds me of the rock and roll groupie scene from los angeles in the early 1970s because you see you have this man you have this pastor who's essentially a rock star and in our past conversations i think that you compared jack hiles giving his Sunday's coming sermon, like we heard in the first episode, you compared him giving a Sunday's coming sermon to Metallica playing Enter Sandman. So mm-hmm. you have this man, essentially a rock star, and then you have this culture where young women, especially, are heavily encouraged to fawn over this man in adoration. And if there's something unsettling, like there just seems like there's something unsettling about that to me. So I was too young to see that kind of adoration over Jack Hiles happen in real time. I only met him once that I can actually remember. But I definitely saw it happen uh, when Jack Scop, his son-in-law, was the pastor of the church years later. So when Scop walked into a room, the room fell silent. It was like the air had been sucked out of the room. The only other time I've ever experienced that 
quite so profoundly in my life was seeing Guns N' Roses go on stage. Wow. And I'm told that the, yeah, and I'm told that the star power effect was a lot stronger for Hiles than it was for Scop. So for those reasons, I, I do think it's appropriate to compare him to a rock star in a lot of ways. He was like a rock star, but he was also everybody's father or grandfather. And the important thing in all of this in the college girl songs and everything is that respect of Jack Hiles had turned into adoration and that adoration was quickly approaching worship. It's going a very clear direction. It's what I'm saying. So in the early 1980s, uh, Jack Hiles' only son, David Hiles, was the youth pastor at First Baptist Church of Hammond. Uh, he had been youth pastor at First Baptist Church since he was like 19. And very suddenly, he was called away to work at Miller Road Baptist Church, which is a church in Texas that Hiles had pastored before coming to Hammond. So did they say why he was, he, why he was carted away? In the IFB, no one ever says why they did anything except to say that God called them to do it. Huh. So the only reason that David Hiles' sudden call from God drew any attention at all was just how quickly it happened. Some people who were there at the time claimed that David and his wife, Paula, were just loaded into a moving van literally overnight. There was no sending off celebration. There was no cake and punch after the service. Just one morning, he and his wife and his two kids were just gone. Like that. Just, just like that. Wow. So rumors started to spread about this, of course. But gossip was a sin, and especially gossip about a pastor with the last name of Hiles. Of uh, so, you know, people tried to keep the rumors on the down low. Jack Hiles started to look old, not so much middle-aged. Loyalty began to be hammered more and more in sermons, uh, as did gossip and the sin of gossip. Everyone knew that something was up. But very few people knew exactly what. By 1984, David Hiles is back at First Baptist Church of Hammond, only for a few more years, and then all of a sudden moved to another Southern church. The whole thing repeats itself. Just a bit suspicious. Yeah, and, and best I can tell, everybody knew something was up, but nobody wanted to ask. But this wasn't the only thing that was going on. This wasn't the only suspicious oh, thing Oh, not remotely uh, through the 80s, the college was rocked with some scandals that would later seem mild <laughs> compared to what was about to happen. A staff member was caught having sex with a Hiles Anderson student in the dark tunnel under the chapel. Another Hiles Anderson staff member was caught having sex with a young woman who was currently of age, but had formerly been one of his bus kids. Creepy. Which is just gross. Um, there were rumors about a certain Bible college professor and the mysterious bruises on his young adopted daughter. And, of course, the growing litany of rumors about Dave Hiles. But few people said anything about it. And if you did try to call this sort of thing out, you were told to be quiet. If you speak up, you're going to ruin this ministry. And this ministry has to save America. Wow. So if you talk, you're dooming America to hell. So the church was still thriving, the college was still growing, everyone was shutting up, but sooner or later, everybody knew that there was trouble. And this simmering pressure cooker of corruption and rumor boiled over in an incredibly dramatic way in 1989. So, evangelist Robert Sumner, in his Baptist periodical magazine, The Biblical Evangelist, risked 
everything to print what he called, quote, the saddest story we ever published. This incredibly long article opens with a letter to Jack Hiles from Judy Nistrick Johnson, Jenny Nistrick's daughter. And Jenny, Jenny Nistrick, yeah, she was the one who was in charge of the tape and book distribution. Yes. So in this letter, Judy uh, accuses Hiles of stealing her childhood, stealing her mother's affection and having an affair with her, lying to the entire congregation and being, and I just had to include this quote, quote, a self-proclaimed giant, sensationalist, exhibitionist, and big-time spender grasping for every expression of love, admiration, and loyalty that you can get your filthy little hands on, end quote. Wow. I I love it. (laughs) That's a a very vivid description. So after that um, piercing beginning, the biblical evangelist story goes on for many pages. It follows the narrative of Vic Nistrick, Jenny's husband. Sumner and Nischik lay out Vic's claims in the late 60s. He says when the Nischik's two children were small, Jack Hiles called the couple to his office and asked Jenny to take over the tape distribution. They were both happy to have a larger part in the ministry. Jenny takes the office next door to Hiles at the church. And Vic says that by 1971, his wife would no longer touch him or have sex with him at all. And that she asked him for a divorce. Wow. And he starts to suspect that his wife and Jack Hiles are having an affair. Vic Nistrick made a statement under oath. And according to that statement, he produced physical evidence of the affair at a meeting, a private meeting between him, Jenny, and Hiles. Unfortunately, we don't know what that evidence was. Most people think it was love notes. But this is the only tiny hole in Nistrick's story because he never said what this evidence was or shared it with anyone else. And my job writing this would have been so much easier if he had. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lengthy interview with uh, Nischik that's available. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the important, the important interview in my opinion. So according to Nischik, Hiles suggested that, that Vic stay in the home so that, you know, it would give the appearance that he and his wife were still married, but he didn't want them in the same bedroom. So Victor Nischik moves into the basement. Um, he's never in the same room with his wife, Jenny. She's still working for Hiles. Um, while Vic was living in the basement, Hiles bought Jenny a new car every two years. According to Judy, the daughter, he had a private phone line, a quote, business phone, run into her bedroom for business reasons. Uh, of course. And once Hiles took three uh, ladies, including Jenny, without their husbands and without his wife, on vacation to Hawaii, where they stayed, stayed in the same hotel. Ooh, scandalous. Yeah, which is against the rules for Hiles Anderson College students, if you read the handbook. And all of this, apparently was paid for by Hiles' petty cash, which he received from churches and his and from his own tape sales. So this is starting wow. to look really, really bad. And here's the real, the real crazy allegation. Victor claims that in one confrontation with Hiles, Jack Hiles offered him the same relationship with Beverly, that's Hiles' wife, that he, Hiles, had with Jenny. <sighs> so this is a private conversation. There are no witnesses. So we cannot know whether that's 100% true or not, but wow. Uh, The biblical evangelist also claims that Beverly Hiles left Jack at one time, but that she came back for the good of the ministry. 
uh, that incident is also recorded in a book written by one of Jack Hiles' daughters, uh, Linda Hiles. She says it happened around 1969 or 1970, just after the affair with Jenny started, and that Beverly was gone for six or eight weeks. So the story goes on that Victor um, living in the basement was causing him health issues, so Hiles paid for an addition to be built over the house's garage with an apartment for him to live in at a cost of about $11,000. Finally, by 1985, so we are roughly 13 years or more into this alleged affair, Vic Nischik had enough. He says that he confronted Hiles and demanded that he leave his wife alone. At this point, Jenny files for divorce. The divorce was messy and there was going to have to be a court trial. So Hiles met with both Victor and Jenny's attorneys and negotiated the divorce unilaterally. Then You could do that? <laughs> apparently. That, wow. I don't know how legal it was. But after the divorce, uh, Jenny almost immediately purchases a condo, which Vic claims was worth around $100,000. The majority of that was paid in cash. In depositions from the divorce, and that's the, the depositions from the divorce are the only statements under oath that we have about this. So to me, that stands for something. Um, Nischik's claims that the gifts that he knows of between Hiles and his wife add up to at least $100,000, not counting the condo. Judy also claims that she often saw large amounts of cash just lying around the house. Jack Hiles was carrying on an affair with this man's wife for 13 years, buying her cars, throwing all kinds of money around, and his influence was so strong that Vic didn't do anything or say anything about it, and the kids all knew what was going on, and they were clearly told to keep it a secret. But this went on for over a decade. That's how strong the loyalty towards Jack Hiles was. That's how strong like the fear of his wrath was. If you're thinking, this seems wild, this seems like something that you would see on an episode of Mari Povich, well, well, this was on an episode of Mari Povich. You can look it up. Look up Jack Hiles, Mari Povich, and there's like an episode from, I want to say, like 1989 that's all about this. It, it, they have they interview Nischik, they interview Hiles. It's wild. Yes, this is literally an episode of Mari. It is. <laughs> which it I is. just actually, I actually just found out about, and I thought that was really funny. So more than the fear of Jack Hiles' wrath, people were afraid of God's wrath. So you remember one of the first episodes we did, we talked about J. Frank Norris, the pastor with the brain in a mason jar story. You remember that? Was that, that's the man's name? Yeah, I finally found it. Oh, wow. Okay. But you remember the, the mason jar story, that this is what happens if you cross a pastor. Yeah. Jack Hiles similarly told terrifying tales of car wrecks and death and destruction that rained from heaven on those who defied him. So people, yeah, people were scared of Hiles being mad. They were scared of losing their jobs. But much more than that, they were scared of the wrath of God. I did want to bring up one uh, point of allegation that Judy Nischik and Linda Hiles Murphy agree on. The Nischik house and the Hiles house were one street apart, uh, kind of around the corner from each other. And they both agree that a flashlight or car headlights would be blinked between the two houses 
like if someone were using blanks as communication. Like Morse code. Yes. And in my opinion, this is one of the more important pieces of evidence. I know that this might seem like a small thing compared to some of the other stuff that we have. But this is important to me because it's one of the only pieces of evidence that can be verified by somebody who isn't Vic, Jenny, or Jack Hiles. Yeah, and so and it's both the daughters of Hiles and the daughters of Nischik agree on this yes. specific detail. So there's that, there's substance to it. And then there's one other big piece of evidence that we need to talk about. The biblical evangelist article and more, many more people claim that there was a door between Hiles' office and Jenny's. So their offices are next door to each other, and they're adjoining. There's a there's a door between the two. I mean, that doesn't seem necessarily nefarious on no, the like surface, the, but you yeah. Know, it's a thing that happens in office buildings. Right. Now, the Biblical Evangelist article claims that the door was obscured by a drapery on Jenny's side of the door, and that it was camouflaged by some wooden paneling on Hyle's side. People who I know who have seen both sides of said door tell me that it absolutely did exist, but they take issue with the claim that it was camouflaged because you can see this infamous door in some pictures of Hiles inside his office. It's just there. It's just there. According to the people I talked to about this as well, the drape on Jenny's side was almost never drawn over the door. Like there was a drape, but she didn't use it to cover the door necessarily. And the door on Hiles' side was clearly visible. It had a doorknob. And photo evidence supports the fact that there was absolutely a door but also the fact that it wasn't what you'd call secret or hidden. In the biblical evangelist and lots of other sources, pastors and other people who knew Hiles started asking him to have the door boarded up when these rumors started to get louder. So we're leading up to the article's publication, leading up to the publication of Vic Nistrick's tell-all book. People are starting to talk. And according to these stories, Hiles would respond to people. People would just beg him to, to bo- just board up the door, just prove it false, board it up cemented over. And Hiles would respond with something like, my people need to be able to trust me. My people need to take my word for it. So Vic Nischik also says that Hiles could turn on a special switch in his office to put on a little light on the secretary's desk. And that when that light was on, neither Hiles nor Jenny, who were ostensibly in their separate offices, which were conjoined by a door, which were conjoined by a door, but neither one of them were to be disturbed by knocks or telephones ringing while they're in their individual offices. That are connected. Yeah. Um, So once Vic says that their daughter broke her arm while she was at school, and Judy had to sit in the nurse's office for hours because the school staff were unable to reach Jenny because she was supposedly in her office for the whole day with that little light on, leaving her child... Yeah, alone with a broken bone for hours. This is this is a sordid tale, and there is quite a bit of evidence for. Uh, and what Jack Hiles stands accused of is not illegal, but they're very serious transgressions. So, how does the congregation of First Baptist Church of Hammond react to finding out that their beloved pastor is an adulterer? So, the biblical evangelist published the original article on May first, nineteen eighty nine. On May fourteenth, nineteen eighty nine. Hiles spoke from the pulpit and, quote, declared war on Nischik, Sumner, and all the other accusers in a sermon called Weathering the Storm. So in this sermon, Hiles states that he has seen letters accusing him of affairs with 13 different women, 
that these letters had been circulated across the country to different pastors who were maybe planning on sending their kids to Hiles Anderson or planning on having him speak. For five years, Hiles said, these letters have been circulating around the country. And in the sermon, Hiles tells his congregation that he has shouldered the burden of these accusations for five years because he didn't want to hurt his congregation by letting them hear these terrible lies. Pure selflessness. Yeah, that's what he says. Hiles does this this whole long sermon, um, which is linked in the show notes, uh, the full audio. And the next week, the biblical evangelist publishes Hiles' lengthy response letter, uh, which I think is pretty fair of them. I appreciate that. So he begins with saying that in 1982, uh, in his position on the board of the Sword of the Lord newspaper, Hiles voted against Robert Sumner in a dispute against the editor of that newspaper, who would have been Sumner's boss. Hiles says that maybe this dispute is why Sumner is falsely accusing him now and being so disloyal. So this seems a bit far-fetched to me. Like, I guess if you... If you exist in a tribalist world where people are divided up into allies, uh, uh, people who love you and enemies who constantly seek your destruction, I guess it could maybe sort of make sense. But that it just seems yeah, and, out there. Well, that paranoia, that's what the IFB is made out of. This is like a meta example of the insider versus outsider thinking in the bite model. Either they're for you or they're against you. And if they're against you, they're against God. And if they are against you, they're for the devil. So, Hiles goes on um, in his response letter to answer the claims of the original biblical evangelist article point by point. He says that Nischik blames his marital problems on Hiles. He begins to speak to Nischik's specific accusations. So, on the condo, for example, Hiles says... It was not new. The article said it was new. It wasn't new. The purchase price is actually $67,900, not 100000 And then Hiles says he also didn't have anything to do with choosing or purchasing the condo. So he basically just flat denies everything. Yes. He denies each accusation separately, and he uses this math discrepancy on the price of the condo to discredit Vic flat out because he calls him a liar. So Heil says, how could a man who tells four untruths in 16 words and one number be trusted in the rest of this article in reference to the condo, what it actually costs and so on. So for me listening to the story and for whatever else who has, who hasn't heard it before, my reaction to this is what does the price of the condo have to do with anything? Why is he talking about the price of the condo? The price of the condo is just a random inconsistent detail that isn't at all relevant to the substance of the accusation. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I think it is. Because Hiles goes on to further kind of muddy the waters by listing 13 different church members to whom he has given housing or money for housing. Embarrassing. Yeah, like to have one's private financial difficulties because he gives full first and last names and amounts <sighs> in a newspaper. Uh, I I think that's a little crass, personally. Uh, Inappropriate. But Hiles goes on to talk about the claims that his love offering money that he gets from all these different churches is unaccounted for. He mentions all these incidents in the past year where he has given the money that he received as love offerings to other preachers. And he makes the same claim that he always made, which is that that money is used at his discretion to help others. I don't know about you, but if somebody told me that they had a fund called love offering then I would assume that it was money set aside to buy things for their secret lover. But that's just me. 
I guess we'll never I guess we'll never know because none of this money was accounted for. None of it was. That seems sketchy and highly illegal, but okay. In reference to the cars that he purchased for Jenny, Hiles lists two other high-ranking First Baptist Church female staff members whom he purchased cars for every two years. Um, same schedule that he bought her new cars on. Was he fooling around with them too? I, I don't think there's any way of knowing. So two unnamed church staff members that Beverly may have thought Jack had an affair with uh, are mentioned in Linda Hiles' book, but it is not, they are not, they're not named. So I don't know if either one of them are also the two that he was buying cars for in the response letter. Hmm. So Hiles basically uses this list of his own good deeds to show that it's not unusual for him to give money to people in the church, even large amounts of money. And I did want to talk about this because I think these things are, might be or probably are true. I have known too many people who support these claims, too many people with stories of Jack Hiles gave me $5,000, Jack Hiles bought me a new car. I absolutely do think that he was in the habit of doling out money to people in need. The question isn't, did he do it? Because I, I really believe he did. The question is, should that money be seen as Christian charity, especially when he bragged about it from the pulpit? And now in his response letter, he's listing exact names and numbers. But this response, here's something that also bothers me, because it feels to me like when some drug lord or some crime boss or the head of some cartel somewhere is arrested for is arrested and going to prison. And then they get before the judge and they ask for leniency and and sentencing because of all of the money that they've donated to schools and all of the families that they've helped out. That's the vibe that I get from it. Well, that's exactly what it sounds like to me as well. And I think it's worth noting that Jack Hiles was enough of a fan of the mob comparison that he actually themed an entire youth conference around that at one point. Weird. I think that would be like deeply unchristian. Yeah, he took a lot of flack for it, but apparently that was what he wanted to do. Wow. Mm. So in the next part of his response letter, the, the first half is him kind of pointing out the, the condo price discrepancy and uh, all of these good deeds that he has done that he's listing. So kind of in the, the second half of the response letter, he switches gears and he goes on attack against Vic Nistrick's character in retaliation. He says that Jenny sought the divorce because Vic tried to convince a female employee to run off with him. He also claims that Jenny told him that she had caught Vic in bed with another was uh, with another woman. Hiles includes a letter from an unnamed anonymous young woman who was a co-worker of Vic's 1968 to 1971 the, this anonymous letter claims that Vic had a bad reputation at the car dealership they worked at, and the other salesmen had told her to watch out for him and don't never be alone with him. The anonymous writer also claims to have been a First Baptist Church member as well and heard rumors about him having sex with the former Him Baptist, uh, that's the First Baptist Church High School student in the mid-1970s. She also says that she saw him and this recent high school graduate flirting during a church service at First Baptist Church. Uh, Hiles has a couple anonymous letters in here. The only one that he uses with a name attached is from a well-known woman at First Baptist Church who says that Vic was, quote, flirty with teenage girls. When it comes to Jack Hiles receiving letters that have damning information about people that... This is a bit of a, a classic move of his. Like, 
we found another instance where he claims that a man named Paul Sand left his church and Hiles knew that he was going to walk down a path of sin. And then what do you know, 22 years later, Hiles gets a letter saying that Paul Sand was imprisoned for murdering his wife and lover after running to, into them in a parking lot. Now, we're actually planning another episode in which we look into this in greater detail, but we've done considerable research. And at this point, and we're like 99.99% certain that this story is entirely fabricated. In fact, I'm currently working on a theory that Jack Hiles stole the man's name and inspiration from an episode of the MASH spinoff Trapper John M.D., but we'll have, we'll have more about that later. It's like this. This is too bizarre to make up. It, it really is. Oh, Hiles is an old man. Of course, he watches a Mash spinoff, <laughs> and and he, which is really funny because he preached against Mash a lot. Um, but really? I, I, started, well, you would, I guess you wouldn't know what it was unless you watched it. Oh, you know, that's a good point. Is that really a show that he hated so much? I don't, I'll, I'll come up with some sound bites for you. <laughs> he hates Alan Alda. So I started researching that Paul Sand story with the assumption that it might be true. I have found nothing. I'm trying so hard to prove that this wasn't a straight up lie. I got nothing at this point. We've we've spent literally hours and hours and hours on this, but that's a story for a different time. Anyway, anyway. the point I'm trying to make is that Jack Hiles in his sermons would frequently say, I have a letter here with some damning information about somebody who left my flock or spoke badly towards me. And then he, he like he would do this all the time and it would just be like, I have a letter. And then he would hold like it could have been like his, his bank statement or it could have been like a phone bill. But he would be like, I have this letter here <laughs> and you'll never believe what it says. And yeah, and he uses this the same way that J. Frank Norris used the mason jar story. It's an instrument of fear. It's this is what's going to happen to you if you leave or if you say something bad about me yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah it's great and that so, you get entertainment out of this it seems bizarre to me that somebody would write him an anonymous letter about this especially in a culture in which clout is so freely given for snitching on people for sinning like why on earth would somebody like if somebody's got this level of juice on somebody that <laughs> is like this high on jack hiles target list you'd think that they would be like yeah it was me i wrote that letter now like let me let my social standing be grossly inflated you would think so wouldn't you you would none of this makes any sense so to finish up the the Hiles response letter, he goes on to present an exhaustive and frankly just exhausting list of 52 quote untruths. Uh, most of them are consist of like a statement from the original article followed by the words all caps this is an untruth. And then sometimes there's an explanation or statements to the contrary of whatever that original claim was. Perhaps the most interesting of all of those claims that he makes in the, in the back end of his letter is that Hiles says there is no connecting door between his office and Jenny's office. But we've seen the door. We know this it's is, there. <laughs> and this is so strange to me because it, it wasn't just the people at the top that he knew had his back that had seen the store. Anybody who had ever been in his office, the 150 whatever people he counseled every week that were in his office... Which, by the way, like I talked about this in the last episode, that it seems entirely impossible that he counseled that many people 
So how he would do it, you would line up. So you'd line up outside his office after a church service, and he'd take like two hours and see everybody in line for five minutes. That's how he did that. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that that tracks, I guess. Yeah. Most of Hiles, the, the door claim, this stands out to me so much because most of his like counterclaims and his response, I can't confirm or deny it. Because there's no physical evidence. I didn't witness any of this. I wasn't born yet. And so much of this entire confusing soap opera drama. I just have to accept a lot of this. Because, you know, a lot of the evidence is Vic says this. Jack says that. Jenny doesn't say anything at all. Because there's nothing physical to look at. And by the way, this is a whole nother problem. Because... This case is an excellent example of how women are treated like property in the IFB, but we are not going to have time to talk about that today. Anyway, <laughs> I feel I feel blinded by the lack of actual evidence that either one of these men produce. I feel blinded by the fact that the only witnesses to any of this were people who were still under the spell of the IFB. I feel blinded by the fact that all of this happened before I was born. The next huge scandal I was there for, and this one I wasn't, and it's frustrating. At this event shaped my life. It was responsible for some of my worldview growing up that there is so little to look at and so few things that I can absolutely verify as absolute truth. However, that's why Jack Hiles claimed that there wasn't a door sits so poorly with me because I know there was a door. I have seen pictures of the door. My parents have seen the door from both sides. There was a door. And for Jack Hiles to say that there wasn't when I know there was, that's difficult for me to process. If you watch the episode of Maury, you can tell that Jack Hiles is lying through his teeth and it's hilarious. Yeah, he doesn't nearly look as confident on that, does he? Oh, it's it's so obvious. But like, basically, when accused of wrongdoing, Jack Hiles' MO is to deny everything, obfuscate, and then attack anybody accusing him of anything. This is like... This is just right out of his page one on his playbook. Yeah, and there's there's plenty of proof that something bad happened here. Uh, there's not, you know, there, there's only like circumstantial and really good circumstantial and witness evidence for the affair. But specifically, whether he had the affair or not, that's not the real story here, in my opinion. The real story is that his response to the attack was to deny and then attack the ones who attacked him with unverified anonymous claims. His people were expected to believe these anonymous claims about Vic because Heil said they were true. And to me, that is a far bigger problem than the whole affair, was there or wasn't there an affair, that his reaction to it is, is much more important, in my opinion. So here's the way that I see it, is that these people love Hiles, and they have based their whole identity around loving Hiles, and finding out that he is not, in fact, what he appears to be, but also a liar, a cheater, an adulterer that is threatening to their identity. You know, they see that that's threatening to their identity. So they're looking and they're begging for any possible reason to believe him and all he's got to do is give the flimsiest distraction like say i received this anonymous penned letter and that says that this guy is a liar and they're like good enough for me that's all that they need yeah it was what they desperately needed to hear the people who were invested in hiles and his ministry had given 
their lives, given years of their lives to him, thousands of hours of unpaid labor. Maybe they were one of the people who dropped their wedding ring in the offering plate to pay for Hiles Anderson College. Yeah, imagine that. And Hiles might have given them money at some point. Maybe they're one of those people who fell on hard times and he bought out their mortgage or bought them a new car. Their lives, their daily lives in the last 10, 15, 20 years of their lives were caught up in this completely. And they absolutely had to hear him deny these things. So if Heil said that he knew the man or the woman who wrote this letter and that it was true, then they were just ready to accept it. So I think it's understandable that the members of First Baptist Church of Hammond were in an absolute panic. This time period became known as the Battle of 1989, and that's how it is still referred to in the IFB. Even at Hiles Anderson College now, these kids who uh, were born years after the fact, we all know what the Battle of 1989 was. Uh, some people left the church. They were called deserters in God's army. For people who stayed, there were buttons printed with a logo of, uh, said 100% for Hiles. These buttons were worn around the church and the campus of Hiles Anderson. Jerry Kafitz, who will show up in a more prominent way down the, down the road, but we'll get there. Uh, he's rumored to be the person who made the 100% for Hiles buttons. Hiles Anderson chapel sermons encouraged those who were disloyal to just get out, just leave if you don't believe Brother Hiles and you shouldn't be here. Voyle Glover, who is a former member and also an attorney, released a 450-page book, Fundamental Seduction, which focused on Hiles' manipulation and control and the system that First Baptist Church of Hammond had become. And this book was worse than contraband. But somehow, most people knew what was in it. Sort of like how you had never seen Pokemon, but you knew that they were summoning demons by casting spells. <laughs> <laughs> so that definitely could be the case where people knew about something because of what the preacher had said about it. But my suspicion is that many more of the church members read it than you might think. Uh, that's not something I could ever prove, but that's just uh, that's just my suspicion. Having this book, if you got caught with it, would it be worse than like, for instance, getting caught with like a truckload of gay pornography? <laughs> so let me tell you what happened to one person who read the book. Oof, okay. Jerry Kafitz. This guy made these 100% for Hiles buttons. Yeah. He was a Hiles Anderson student. I believe he was a master's student at the time. He had risen to some amount of social status at Hiles Anderson. And he was really good friends with Hiles' son-in-law, Jack Scott. And Scott is somebody who's going to be a major player later in the story. We'll have all sorts of... Oh, all sorts of fun with him, yeah. So, um, Scott and Kafitz had met one day for lunch. And just after the food arrived, Kafitz said four words to Scop. I read the book, meaning fundamental seduction. Scop stood up, threw his napkin on the table, and left the restaurant without saying a word. There friendship was over. Their business partnership was over. All because Kafitz admitted to having read the book. He didn't even say that he believed a single thing in it. He just admitted that he read it. Need I say information control? Perfect example of that. Yeah, this is a very obvious example of, a, of information control. It's, it's not even subtle at all. Yeah, and they didn't even want to be subtle anymore because they were at war. Like, if you look at their language, they're at war. And the war isn't just external, the war is internal, and you have to keep yourself safe 
from it. So you can't expose yourself to anything that might turn you into the enemy. I think that's kind of the perspective. Yeah, and that's very interesting, isn't it? Because as best as I can guess, the reason that people were not supposed to read the book was so that they wouldn't be fooled by these educated men who were writing lies about Hiles. You weren't supposed to read it because listening to lies and gossip are sins. You weren't supposed to read it so that it wouldn't poison your mind against the pastor that God had given you. I remember I was shaking the first time I started to look into this stuff online because I I wanted to find out what had really happened back then. I just I remember it just feeling so monumental and so scary and wondering if I would be able to tell the lies from the truth. So was this um before you discovered the clear history button on the internet browser? <laughs> no, I wasn't worried about getting caught. I was an adult. I was worried about whether it would change me or whether it would make me a bad person to read this. This was like really, really early in the process of me getting out. Oh, okay. And so I was like, had this burning desire to know the truth. And I had to risk in my own mind being a traitor, being disloyal, communing with liars and gossips, and all of these things that made me fear, feel guilt and fear and shame. I, I had to risk all of that to accomplish my goal of finding out the truth. Wow. So church members wrote letters to Sumner. They wrote letters to other pastors who believed the allegations. They wrote letters to Vic Nischik. Uh, Nischik says that uh, feces was left on his doorstep at one point. Fun. Uh, Jerry, very Christian, right? <laughs> yeah. So J- Jerry Massey, who will also come up later, fantastic author. She says that loyal Hiles followers would break into the houses of people who had come out as anti-Hiles, steal their Hiles Anderson College diplomas. Is there like evidence for that? That sounds... I I don't know, but honestly, if Jerry Massey says it happens, I believe her. Okay. Uh, She's a a true expert. Wow, okay. Letters flew back and forth. Everyone wrote letters to everyone. Um, So we talked about the biblical evangelist publishing Hiles' response letter in full. They published a response to his response, and then they published the next letter he sent as well. And then they determined that everybody had probably about had their say on the matter, and they wouldn't publish any further on it. So it comes time for pastor school the next March, so 1990. And Hiles releases a letter with approximately one million exclamation points in it. A million exclamation points. <laughs> yeah, you have to one take a look at the letter million there. Million exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> Are you comparing Hiles to Doctor Evil now? Maybe a little bit. You know, that's not a terrible comparison. <laughs> did he have? I mean, he did replicate himself, as we yeah. covered in the last episode. Anyway, <laughs> there were a lot of exclamation points in this letter. <laughs> <laughs> oh god are you okay i'm fine that was deeply unpleasant (sighs) let me check so hiles want it releases this very exclamatory letter to let everyone know that pastor school is still happening uh pastor school happens and another huge scandal breaks at that meeting which we'll talk about later in the next episode. So after these two huge scandals in 89 and 90, 
The scandals are still on everybody's minds, but months and years pass and the church is able to regain a facade of normalcy. So is this when we get to the poison sermon? So the poison sermon happened in 1990. Uh, so it would be either right before, right after the Nistrich scandal broke and right before the other one broke or um, right after the second scandal broke. Not quite sure. So right in the midst of this. Right in the middle of the worst of all of this. And from what I've heard from my parents, and this is supported by the audio that we played at the beginning, Hiles wasn't even verbally so much making the point about loyalty. He was preaching about something else. I just think it was such a good time to sneak this point in about assistant pastors being so loyal that they wouldn't flinch at the idea of drinking poison. In any case, even if you wanted to see Hiles as an innocent man here, this is an extraordinarily poor time to demonstrate the idea of people drinking poison. Uh, seeing that a book about First Baptist Church of Hammond being a cult had just come out. People remember Jonestown. Yes, and Jonestown still being recent memory. Yeah, see, th this is where I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Is that after 1989, 1990, after all these huge scandals are rocking the church and the IFB movement, Jack Hiles feels vulnerable. How do you fight your possible vulnerability? You show that you are a force to be reckoned with. You perform a show of strength. Like, I'm reminded here of a scene in The Sopranos when uh, it's one of the later seasons, uh, Tony Soprano, um, the, who's the boss of the family, is recovering from a gunshot wound and he's feeling kind of weak and vulnerable. So he deliberately picks a fight with his bodyguard and just over something, he's like, why did you slam the refrigerator door when his bodyguard had just been sitting in the chair the whole time? So he picks a fight with this guy because he knows that this guy is not allowed to fight back. And he just wants to show, like, this is how tough I am. I can beat up this muscly guy that's way stronger than me. And he just wants to send a message to the rest of his crew. I'm not somebody to be messed around with. And that's sort of the vibe that I got here. You know, maybe I watch a lot of mafia movies. Maybe that's <laughs> my my problem here. But it's difficult for me to not see a guy like Jack Hiles in the same way that I would see a guy like Tony Soprano. So what I see this as is a very sneaky way to reinforce something that Hiles had said before. It was not unusual for him to claim that his staff members would drive off a bridge for him. So offering, you know, I think this physical illustration of offering one of your yes men a glass of poison in front of thousands of people, that might have been enough to raise even the most faithful eyebrow. But doing it under the guise of talking about something else gives us plausible deniability while still allowing him to make this very poignant visual illustration. Because it was, it was just like an offhanded remark. Yes. And I think if you were going to see Hiles as a manipulator, if you're going to see him as a bad guy, then what he did in that, that time was absolutely brilliant. So a couple of years go by, uh, while other IFB churches are separating into camps, depending on whether they are pro-Hiles or whether they're pro-Nistrick and Sumner. First Baptist Church of Hammond is working hard to put on the face of things are back to normal, even as allegations continue to swirl about David Hiles and proprieties. And so things are getting fractured here. I think it's more correct to say that the fractures are so large now that they're visible to people other than those at the top. Things have been fractured for a very long time, but now everybody's able to see it. Pastor School 1993 
saw the premiere of an internal sort of documentary about the ministries of First Baptist Church. It was called The Church with a Heart. The audio from I'll Take the Bus Kids in the first episode and the audio from The Girls Singing We Love You Preacher, those are both uh, audio borrowed from that documentary. And fun fact, my dad was one of the three people in charge of making it happen. So this documentary is basically just propaganda and damage control to try to rehabilitate Heil's image. Yeah. I mean, of course, that's not at all how it was presented, but that's what I think it was. It was, uh, so they would have like this presentation every year at pastor school where people would give testimonies about how much the church had changed their lives or how much Brother Hiles meant to them. This documentary was meant to be a more physical piece of First Baptist Church of Hammond's history, uh, something that people could even take home with them. It was intended to cement all of these positive things about Hiles' legacy and tell his story the way he wanted it to be told. First Baptist Church had lost a lot of the national churches in their following, and their students were now being sent to alternate Bible colleges. As far as I know, people were very strictly divided into pro-Hiles and anti-Hiles camps. But either the church membership numbers were padded or the scandal didn't just decimate attendance as much as you might expect that it would. Of course, bus kids were still the biggest factor in determining church attendance, and members were still strongly encouraged to go bus calling every weekend. Uh, so it makes sense that that membership didn't just completely die off. That, no, that makes sense. So the Nistrix scandal changed how the IFB world saw Hiles. The Nistrix scandal even made some local newspapers like the uh, Northwest Indiana Times but the next scandal made a much bigger splash in the world outside the IFB. And just kind of brace yourself, this is sad and terrible. Within a few months in 1993, several child molestation scandals broke at IFB <sighs> churches nationwide. So we're talking multiple churches in Michigan, churches in other states. One of them was at First Baptist Church of Hammond. Most of them were connected to Hiles Anderson. So, in, for example, the person who is committing this crime is a Hiles Anderson graduate in a lot of cases. The one in Hammond was Deacon A.V. Ballinger. Uh, he was arrested for child molestation. The child was one of his bus kids, and the abuse had taken place on First Baptist Church of Hammond property. Hiles defended Ballinger from the pulpit. He said the accusations were false, uh, Jack Scott, the son-in-law, also steps up to the plate for Ballinger. He says that he knew the child in question, that she was always affectionate with bus workers. She always wanted to give hugs and kisses. So this must all just be a big misunderstanding. That's horrendous. Yeah, this is this is where it gets real. This is just nasty. You know, this is way worse than an affair. Yeah. So Jack Hiles had a policy. He said, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. The way he presented it, this policy was meant to prevent him from believing false rumors. The way he presented it, it was loyalty to his trusted friends. But even if, even if you want to take Hiles at his word, there, if you, even if you believe that that is really the way he saw it, that it was, it was loyalty, it was, I'm not believing false rumors, this policy, even if it was 100% well-meaning, it allowed child abusers, child molesters, rapists, and all kinds of other criminals to flourish at his church and his college. <sighs> so this one made a bigger splash because 
WJBK News out of Detroit picked up the story about Ballinger in May of 1993 because they had been investigating a string of child molestation cases at a nearby church in near Detroit, and that church was associated with Hiles Anderson. They were the first people to kind of put together that there was a bigger story here. That this was systemic. This, yeah, they were. They it, the um. There have been a couple shining stars in media that have started to kind of put this whole thing together. They, for a week, they ran their top story every night was a different facet of the First Baptist Church scandals and allegations. They dug into the the accusations against Dave Hiles. They dug into... And we're going to go into the accusations against Dave Hiles later. Yes, in, we promise we're going to quit yeah. teasing it and actually tell you all of it <laughs> soon. <laughs> So they dug into to Jack Hiles' money, where, where all this, this cash is coming from. They dug into the Nischik affair, of course. And then they also went into the Ballinger case and more things, more systemic problems at First Baptist Church. Hiles railed against them. He claimed from the pulpit that the lead anchor and 12 other reporters had been fired. That turned out not to be true. It was just made up. Just bad information somewhere. He could have made it up. He could have heard the wrong thing and not checked. Who knows? Jack Hiles enabled rapists, child molesters, and in a case that we'll talk about in a later episode, child murderers. Jack Hiles had no qualms about ruining other people's lives because they had something that he wanted. He created a culture of abuse and violence and actively benefited from that culture. And it's still difficult for Sadie to admit that Hiles was all the way gone. So, like, when I talk to you about him, you uh, you still find a way to speak about him somewhat sympathetically. And you're out of the IFB. You're done. You want nothing to do with it. Um, so, imagine the way that you would feel about Hiles if you were still in the IFB and if this was still happening. Like, his word basically would have the power of God. And this essentially gives him the power to weather any scandal. And that's terrifying. It is. And I want to be clear about this. I am 100% ready to say that when Hiles ignored and stood up for rapists and child molesters, he was wrong, period. He hurt people with his refusal to see and believe the truth. I don't want to seem like I'm defending his actions, but I have to admit that there is still a part of me that just believes he was misguided, he was wrong, and that he didn't cause that terrible harm on purpose. (sighs) Because that's what I was always told. And that's one thing that I still am in the process of letting go of. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. (laughs) 
Hey, Gavrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's facebook.com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show. So there were more scandals, uh, obviously. The, the last three episodes of the series will focus on some of them. There were more newspapers. There were more letters. There were more TV news stories. There were more screaming declarations from the pulpit. But the damage was done. I don't know exactly when it was. I don't know exactly which scandal was the breaking point for the most people. The people broke away from the church, family after family. Eventually, everyone who was going to leave had left. But the church was still huge. The buses still ran. Hiles Anderson still signed up new students. So we showed you the picture of Hiles holding me when I was just about eight months old. So I sent you that picture weeks ago before we started writing this episode. Yeah. And I got, got like no reaction from you. And then I sent it again after we had written this. <laughs> I, I just thought he was just some fundamentalist pastor. I didn't really compute that he was like the whole cult leader that like he did all this stuff because I, I didn't really know. I didn't really get it. But now it seems about a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny because the first time I kind of expected a reaction and then I realized you didn't really know who he was. No, I had no idea. Like, I, I wasn't raised in fundamentalist circles. I don't know about any of this stuff. So I just casually sent it to you again <laughs> after yeah. this episode was written. Yeah, and I'm like, Poof. You know, it's like a whole different world. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up that picture because I wanted to talk to you about something. So you were born in February of 1993 mm -hmm. and the church with the church with a heart that uh, propaganda documentary that that propumentary, if you will, came out in March of 1993. So that means that Jack Hiles tasked your father who had a wife who was either about to give birth or had a newborn at home with producing an entire documentary to rehabilitate his image and your father did it. So this is like, this is what Hiles meant to your family. This is the level to which your father had ascended in the IFB leadership as well. Yeah. And I never actually put that together until you said something about it, because I know for a fact that Hiles knew that my mom was about to have a baby when he asked my dad to, to make the film uh, because of stories that she's told me about interacting with him. And that just, that does seem so self-serving to ask for that. But he knew he could. Yeah. And I certainly don't blame my dad for going ahead and doing it. It was a incredible honor to be asked to do that work for Jack Hiles. And I think if I had been in his shoes, I think I would have done the same thing. Yeah. I mean, your dad had drank the orange juice. Guess he had. So Hiles remains the senior pastor until his death in 2001. So can you talk about what it was like to live through that? So I was born in 93. And then that summer, my parents moved to Alabama to start a church. So while I lived through the very end of some of these scandals, of course, I wasn't able to remember them. I know I heard Hiles preach uh, at least once as a child, once that I remember. And that was while we were in Iowa. So it would have been between 1998 and 2001. I mainly just remember him always being there. 
And I don't mean that I was always aware of him. Like when you're a kid, you kind of know who the president is. Not like that. I mean that he was a presence in my daily life. His books were in my home and at my school. When I was a little kid and and starting to dream of what I might want to name my future kids one day, I was looking through the name list in his How to Rear Infants book. I heard his name on a daily basis. I prayed for him at night before I went to bed. It's a strange feeling. It's a little hard to describe. He was such a part of my life. And all of the things that we've talked about in these two episodes framed and influenced my life. It's, it's just so interesting that all of these things influenced me so much that the only major event out of all of these that I actually remember is Heil's death. And of course, I remember that very well. Yeah, so tell us about that. So when Hiles died, my dad was my school principal at the time. He announced it to the student body, and I just remember crying all day. His death was significant like the death of a grandparent to me. Meanwhile, in Hammond, a mural was painted on the side of one of the church buildings. It was a photo of Hiles and his wife. People came there day and night. They left flowers and cards and Reese's peanut butter cups, which were Hiles' favorite camp candy. Not Mike and Ike's or Milk Duds or... <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a throwback. Or Mounds Bars. <laughs> nope, Reese's were... Or Snickers. <laughs> so there had to be two funerals to handle the size of the crowd. There was one on Friday for pastors and former Hiles Anderson students, and then there was one on Saturday for current students and the church members. Both times, the 7,000-seat auditorium was over capacity. And after his body was buried at the church on cemetery, people gathered at the mausoleum. For weeks, there were people there, 24 hours a day, completely unorganized, completely unplanned. There was a small faction of Hiles Anderson preacher boys who thought there was a chance of him coming back from the dead. And so they kept vigil for a few weeks until it became clear that that wasn't going to happen. So did they think that he was like the second coming of Jesus? Actually, so it would have been really blasphemous for them to say that out loud, but there are some quotes and events that might lead you to believe that they did think that. Uh, One member that's mentioned in the Praying from the Pulpit series uh, from the news station in Detroit, one member said that sometimes he would start a prayer and accidentally pray to Hiles instead of to Jesus. (laughs) There are stories that Hiles liked to repeat himself of little kids in the church confusing Hiles for Jesus. So I don't think it's fair to say that this man does not look like Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think it would be accurate to say that everyone in the church thought he was the second coming. uh, But I don't think it would be accurate to say that no one in the church did. So when I hear this story. I hear about a man who built himself an empire by exploiting either racism, sexism, anger, used that to get people under his control, and then divided them apart from each other and then manipulated them and used his influence to cover up his own transgressions as well as sexual abuse of children, rape, all sorts of physical abuse. Um, Jack Howes created a structure and... We haven't really gotten into this yet, but he created a structure in which sexual violence was a kind of currency. And by currency, I mean that the opportunity to engage in sexual violence against young women, college students, in addition to young girls, that this opportunity to engage in sexual violence without consequences was an included perk in advancement in the church's hierarchy. And so, like you said, you're a member of the LGBT community. And the first clip of the first sermon of Hiles that we listened to, 
um, in the last episode. Uh, Jack Howell said some really hateful things about LGBT people. And his cult stole basically the first two decades of your life. You told me that he took the best years of your dad's life away in service to the church. And yet you still find it difficult to say that you think he was a bad guy, even though you're fully out, even though you don't ascribe to his teachings any longer. That's how deep the brainwashing and the reverence goes. So I think that Heil's hateful speech toward queer people is just so normalized to me that I just I barely register it. I was really, really lucky. I didn't realize I was bi until I was really close to being out. So I was spared from enduring hearing those words as a as a younger person. And knowing that they were about you. Yeah. So I was and I, I just see that as mercy. I was mercifully spared from having to go through that. I know a lot of people who found out about their identity earlier than I did and had to suffer with that. Uh, I think I just don't have a lot of emotional attachment to that. And I don't know if that sounds bad or not, but it was just so normal my entire life that it, it almost doesn't affect. I'm almost immune to hearing that kind of hatefulness about LGBT people. <laughs> That's but, a bummer. I mean, <laughs> if I ever heard one. it's a protection mechanism. I can't say this is good or this is bad or this makes me a good person or a bad person. <laughs> I have no idea. But it's it's like a protective shell, and that's what it is. So I've gotten far enough out to be able to fully accept that Jack Hiles made fatal mistakes when he covered up for criminals. I can accept that he became a criminal himself when he knew about some of these things and didn't go to the authorities. I can accept that the system he created made it very easy to prey on others sexually, financially, and in other ways. I can accept that he created an environment where abuse is normal. I can say that his attitudes towards LGBT people were backwards, unloving, and wrong, and I'm even willing to call him a cult leader. The sticking point for me, the, the point that I'm still, the hurdle that I still have to jump over is accepting that he did all of this out of selfishness or because he himself was controlling or manipulative or evil. So the sticking point, I, I've gotten to the point of he was wrong. The sticking point is going beyond he was wrong and into the realm of he hurt people on purpose and didn't care. So if I'm, if I'm really honest with myself and with you and our audience, I'm afraid of breaking through that mental barrier. I'm afraid of allowing myself to consider what if he was actually a bad actor. I know it would bring shame on my family from people who knew my parents back in the day. Uh, I know that it would uh, people would say bad things about me who knew me back in the day. I I don't know what else to tell you. I I felt like I should be honest about that. I felt like I should be honest about where exactly I am emotionally. I feel guilty. I feel really guilty about saying all these bad things about Hiles on my podcast. Even though we know all of the things that he's done. <laughs> but that's, I also that's, feel that's, guilty wow. about not being willing to go all the way and just wholeheartedly condemn him. So I'm stuck in this this very weird place at the end of this episode. But um, it's part of my journey, and I felt like the most honest thing to do would be to to share it with our audience, because that's where I am right now. But think about where I was 10 years ago, I didn't even know these things. I had been sheltered from all the details about these scandals. And think of me five years ago, having to gather up my courage to read the biblical evangelist article for the first time. 
there's there's been a lot of a lot of growth and i'm absolutely sure that in five more years i'll have a better formed opinion on this so in the second episode of the show we talked about the monumental effort that it takes to undo prejudice and how that work doesn't get done in a day. And I think the same thing is true for unlearning this sort of obsessive veneration. I think that every person has to consider themselves to be a work in progress. And and while how and how quickly we make that progress will affect other people's lives, it's only up to us to decide how and when we want to make that journey. The the important thing here is that we can actually have a nuanced discussion about this, taking into account your upbringing and taking into account the social stigma and not pass judgment on a whole person just because we don't really know what you've been through. And so as much as you can tell all of these stories to everybody, like you, we don't really know. So I'm fully willing to denounce the behaviors that he did in covering foreign enabling abusers that is a sin. It's wrong. And he did it. Uh, what I what I still can't bring myself to do is honestly say that I think he did it on purpose. I still, there's, there's a part of me that believes him when he says mm. that he didn't know about some things, when he says that his definition of loyalty to friends was refusing to hear allegations about them. And I think the bottom line is that belief is a strange thing. I find you know, I am a person who has had my system of belief uprooted. And right now I'm still in the process of rebuilding a belief system based on what I find to be true. Because of that, there are quite a few areas where I have a lot of cognitive dissonance. I feel like often I run into myself holding two different beliefs at once. And that's not where I want to be in the future. But for now, that's okay. For now, that's the way that I am able to exist. I do actively seek truth, and I do eventually find a belief based on the truth that I find. But for now, I have just had to accept that cognitive dissonance is a part of my life. And I think that to some extent, cognitive dissonance has to be part of everybody's life. You can have two conflicting thoughts and ideas in your brain, and that doesn't necessarily make you a hypocrite or a bad person. Learning to accept cognitive dissonance is just like learning to accept that there are some gray areas between good and evil. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I think everyone who's honest with themselves knows that they have some cognitive dissonance somewhere. Everybody has differing amounts. Mine, yeah, mine I just have to confront every day. And I did want to reiterate in the days between writing this episode and recording it, I received some new information, and I think it may well push me over the line as far as Jack Hiles goes. And that's one of the reasons why it was so tough for us to record this episode is because it was it's it's really that fulcrum point. And it was just so emotional. It was very difficult. So what we decided the the most intellectually honest thing to do would be leaving my original thoughts in this episode. Because it's a perfect example of how hard it is to let go of the reverence towards Jack Hiles and the beliefs that I was raised with. As the series goes on, we'll talk a little bit more about what that information was, and uh, we'll get to process it in real time and discuss whether it does ultimately change my opinion. But in the next episode um, in this series, we're going to talk about a man whose actions are inarguably evil. Yes, the next person that we're going to talk about has much less ambiguity. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about David Hiles. Um, as we've teased a bit of stuff about David Hiles in this episode, but we've not even scratched the surface. So in episode one, we talked mostly about the official story of Jack Hiles. This episode, we talked about his personal scandals and the things that eventually everyone knew about. On the next episode in the series, we get to go one step deeper into the Hiles family itself and what exactly all of those accusations about Dave were about. Yeah, if you thought this episode was wild, next episode is is gonna be is gonna be even more so. Next week we're gonna have a, a more normal episode, and then the week after that we're gonna go into David Hiles. Um, but until then, uh, you can follow this podcast on uh, social media. The on Instagram and Facebook, it is Leaving Eden Podcast. On Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Um, my name is Gavriel Hako, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. And you can find me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Helia Sadie. Yeah, and also uh, feel free to send your emails, your questions, your ideas, uh, for things that you want us to talk about, just send that to leavingedenpod at gmail.com. So once again, thanks for listening to the Leaving Eden podcast. Um, and you guys have a nice day. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.